Well, good morning, church. Uh, For those of you who are able to gather on Thursday evening for our prayer meeting, uh, it was so good again to see you, again to be in one another's presence. Uh, it, It brought so much joy to my own heart to be able to pray together and seek the Lord. For those of you who weren't able to make it, uh, we totally understand that. I just want to let you know, being able to see uh, some of the saints in this church just made my heart long to be able to see you again and be able to be together once again. And I, I know that's all of our hearts as believers, to be able to gather to worship the one true God, to be able to sing to him, to be able to hear his word, to be able to enjoy the fellowship of other believers. And so we're laboring in prayer that God would bring us to that point once again, safely, where we're able to meet together once again. But I just want to let you know, I miss you. I miss you and I miss being together. Uh, But we're going to continue to do uh, what is uh, for us bread and food and uh, sustenance for our soul. We're going to look to the word of God. And today we're going to be finishing out John chapter 6, Lord willing. So grab your Bible. I want you to have it so you can see the words of Jesus, the words that the Holy Spirit inspired so you can know what his voice is like and what he has spoken. So here the reading of God's word will be covering chapter 6, verse 60 through 71. Hear the reading of God's holy word. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's holy word. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts as we study it right now. Please pray with me.
Lord Jesus, in this text, there are some hard things. Jesus, we know that uh, your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and yet you do call us to daily pick up our cross. That the way is narrow, Lord. That we have to reckon with the bad news of our sinfulness in order to see the beauty of your gospel of forgiveness. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, please help me in my own uh, limitations to be able to just clearly communicate what your gospel is. Lord, we more than uh, fancy words and more than uh, just moving rhetoric, we want to know what the truth of God is. And so, Lord, please help me be faithful to your word. I completely trust in you and in you alone. So, Lord, would you use your living and active word to search us? And God, I do ask because you are able, Father, to draw sinners to yourself and save them, that you would do that. And would you build us up in our faith and our love for one another in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name, amen. Well, I came across an arresting photo a few weeks ago, maybe even months. The photo is a black and white picture taken uh, from either the late 30s or the early 40s. And it's taken in Germany. And there's just a sea of people from what I can see, almost all men. And all the men just about are doing one thing. They're all raising an arm in a salute to their leader, to Hitler. It was Nazi Germany. It's an astounding photo to realize something like this happened in history. And as we remember all the atrocities of what Nazi Germany did, but what makes the photo so arresting is one person is circled. And in a sea of hundreds, if not thousands of people, you see one man standing with his arms crossed, refusing to salute a wicked dictator. There's a caption for the photo that says, when the time comes, be this guy. We know that's the longing of every righteous person's heart. We know that's the longing of even every human heart to be known as the person that is on the right and righteous side, to be the one who knows the truth, even if everyone else bows the knee, to be the one person who holds fast to what is good and true in the eyes of God. It's a striking photo to consider. In today's text, we have a similarly arresting contrast and scene. If you remember what's happened in chapter 6, Jesus began the chapter in a morning and he gave out bread to people. 
and a miracle. He fed thousands of people and they flocked to him. And he has all these people follow him to the point where he has to get away by himself onto a mountain. And he has to go across the sea and still all these people follow him. It's a story that begins in a morning, but ends in an evening. And it ends up being a story of contrast. Of the many at the start versus the few at the end. It's a story in these final words of a statement. Who can accept this versus another? To whom shall we go, Jesus? It's a story of contrast. It's a beautiful scene painted for us that arrests us. And it begs questions of us that we must search our hearts to be able to answer. It's a story that poses two questions mainly at the close. And the two questions are this. One, why? Why will many leave Jesus? And on the flip side of that, why? Why will some stay with him? In those two simple questions, we find an outline to be able to walk through. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through answering the question, why will many leave Jesus Christ? And so look at the text with me as we read verses 60 through 66, considering why will many leave this man? Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. There is a hard saying at the beginning. Of this, Jesus has given bread, but now many quote unquote disciples are confronted with doctrine. It isn't just a matter of having their bellies full, but it's a matter of accepting a teaching, a teaching, a doctrine that Jesus demands his disciples believe. And we find that as this truth confronts them, it ends up being a dividing line represented by this hard saying. And so we need to ask, what is this hard saying? Well, the hard saying has to do with Jesus' teaching on the bread of life, the manna that we've looked at that's come down from heaven and who he himself is and how he actually is the bread. The hard saying is represented in these three truths that Jesus gave. First, he said that he came from heaven in verse 41. The second thing he said is that he himself 
is the bread from heaven. Also found in verse 41. We see in that verse, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Thirdly, he said that he would have to give his flesh for them to be able to live. It was for the Jews a hard saying that he came literally from heaven. Jesus, what are you saying? We know manna came from the sky, but you're saying you actually came from where God himself is, that you are with him? Jesus, what are you saying? You're saying we need something more than just food, that you are the bread, you are the thing that we need more than anything else? Jesus, what are you saying? What do you mean you have to give your body to give life to this world? What are you saying? Are you saying you have to die somehow? Verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, there had been some confusion before this point where we are in this point in the text. Before the Jews were asking, what do you mean? We have to literally feed on your body. We have to do that. But those things have been worked through. Jesus had made his clarifying statements. At this point, these people in front of him, they actually understand enough. The problem that remains is not that they don't have enough understanding. The problem is that they will not accept Jesus's clear message. Why will many leave? Well, first, they are unwilling to accept his teaching that he is truly from heaven, that he is the bread they need, that he would have to give his life that they might have true life. And secondly, they are offended by the true Jesus in front of them. Jesus turns to them. The text says, verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself, we see there the omniscience of Jesus, that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And I want you to notice, these disciples, they were not coming to Jesus with questions. Can you please explain? We want this bread. Please give us this bread. But how do we get it? No, they're complaining. They're grumbling about him behind their back, behind his back. This saying is hard. Who can listen to this teaching? They're not looking for more information, but they don't accept his clear teaching. And they are actually offended by the true Jesus. Jesus gets at this by asking a rhetorical question, which reminds them and establishes his true authority. Responding to them, he says in verse 62, then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? 
says, do you take offense at this? Which they obviously did. And he asks them the question, what would you do? What are you going to do when you see me rising up, ascending into heaven? Jesus is saying, I'm not, I'm not going to die and remain dead. He's saying, I'm, I'm more than a man. He's alluding to the truth that he will resurrect. He says, what if you were to see that? What do you have to say to that? This is a hard saying for these people. And still today, Christianity is thought of, is received as a hard saying, a hard teaching to people. Make no mistake, there are things that Jesus himself said that the Holy Spirit inspired in this book that are received as just hard sayings. And it's not primarily because people misunderstand what the Lord Jesus Christ has said and what the Holy Spirit has inspired, but because they do understand it, but they don't want to accept it. They don't think of Jesus as truly being God and truly being Lord. There are hard sayings today. The truths of the Bible have not changed. It is a hard thing for some to know that Christ is the exclusive, only way to the Father. He is the only way of salvation. There is salvation in no other person. There is salvation not within. There is salvation not from any other religion. Jesus Christ in his work and exclusively by faith in what he has done in dying on a cross, taking the wrath that our sins deserved and we deserve for sinning against a holy God is the only way to be reconciled to God. That apart from Christ, we perish. It is a hard saying. I think of Jesus' teaching when he was asked on issues relating to marriage and divorce and sexuality in Matthew chapter 19 and what he said in his disciples' response after he taught them, pointing all the way back to the book of Genesis, saying, have you not heard, have you not read in the beginning he made them male and female? And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined fast to his wife. And that divorce is not God's will and is not right. And that adultery is not God's will and is not right. And after he has taught on these things, his disciples say, it's probably better to not get married. Who can, who can believe this? If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus' words have not changed. And church, we need to be the ones who bring the truth in love and in gentleness, but we need to be able to say with Jesus, even as a culture would not embrace it, that God from the beginning made humanity male and female. 
that marriage is exclusively the union of a man and a woman before the sight of God, that that is all that a marriage is and that sexuality in all of its forms is only permissible between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. This is actually a great truth, a life-giving truth that Jesus and the Bible actually have an anthropology to teach us that sex was designed by God to lead to flourishing. That marriage is a good gift that leads to societal flourishing. But we know that some today would not accept this, that this is not the natural uh, way of thinking anymore, that some would say it's even hateful to say some of these different things. But we need to stand where God stands and believe the truth and accept his hard sayings, which means not just on the LGBT issues, but in all of sexuality. That it is sinful. And if you are sleeping or fooling around before marriage, regardless of who it's with, that is sinful and you must stop. That indulging in any sexual immorality, whether it be through what you watch on Netflix and the abundance of wrong things there are there, or where you go on the computer or who you talk to, we must repent of that and run for our lives. Jesus' teaching on human flourishing and sexuality, it, it comes to all of us, whether we're seven or 70, and we need to heed the call of Jesus and obey him in everything. And that is a hard teaching today. It's a hard teaching that people must repent, that without repentance, without turning from your sin to Christ, there is no salvation. That you can't just hold on to your sin and keep on in living a life of sin. If you're doing that, you are showing, evidencing in a perpetual way that salvation has not actually come to you. It is a hard saying. It is hard for us to accept that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. That Washington, D.C. doesn't dictate what is happening in the kingdom of God. Now, there are definitely better and worse laws and legislation and candidates that we can vote for. But the minute we believe that exactly what happens there is exactly what happens in the kingdom of God, we have denied the truth that God's kingdom is not essentially of this world. For all of us, it is a hard teaching to take up your cross daily and deny yourself. If anyone be my disciple, let him, let her deny himself or herself. Take up their cross daily and follow me. To forgive the people that spoke ill of you behind your back and then smile to you the next day is hard to continue to reach out in love to people that hurt you is hard. But we are all to take up our cross daily and follow the Lord Jesus. It is a hard saying. There are hard things in the Bible. 
I want to ask you, what are the hard things for you to accept? And I want to ask you in a plead that if there is something that you say, I don't know if I can do, I don't know if I can accept that, to study the scriptures, to study the word of God, to put yourself in a place of saying, I'll do whatever God says, help me see, to reach out for help in understanding, to get clarity on exactly what the word means. But there will come a day where you'll have to make a choice. And so we need to work through now. Are there hard things? For us to accept, let us be on God's side of the truth. Because one day we truly will see him ascending. Actually descending, coming down, returning to the earth. That day actually will come, church. So why will many leave? Because they are unwilling to accept the teaching of God. Because they are actually offended by the true Jesus, that he is God and has say over all that is true and right. And because they are actually of the flesh, which is to say they have not truly been born again. Verse 63 it is, the, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You see, the problem of humanity, as we've talked about for the last weeks and even years in this church, the problem of humanity is that we are dead in sin. Another way to helpfully see that stated is by Jesus's words, the flesh is no help at all. Flesh refers not just to this little piece of uh, skin and flesh and uh, tissue that I have in my body, but our sinful nature. You see, we have been born in sin and we are dead in our sins. We are enslaved to sin apart from God saving us and causing us to have a new heart that's born again. We just desire what we want and not the things of God. And so the flesh, that sinful state we are born in, it is of no help at all. This means all the collective human wisdom, virtue, and human action will never, ever save this world. You see, we need something more than just the flesh, more than just humans, more than just intuitivity, Uh, or human (laughs) intuition, we need the spirit. We need the spirit of God, which brings new life, which breathes into a dead person. And unlike anything else in this universe, when the spirit of God meets something dead and breathes into it, the spirit of God causes new life. We need the spirit. We need God's word. You see, we've been talking about Jesus' hard sayings and they are hard sayings to those who are in the flesh, to those who are blind, to those who have the veil covering their eyes. But now we look at his words and Jesus himself says, my words are actually spirit and life. And this is true of every teaching in the Bible. Every single teaching of the Bible actually leads to human flourishing whether it be how we are to treat every other image bearer of God, 
which the Bible alone gives us the foundation to be able to understand that every other human, regardless of size or ethnicity or age or the amount of melanin in their skin, regardless of how much money they make, if they're rich or poor, if they're royal or if they are in a a low class, every human is made in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect and being treated with impartiality. And that leads to flourishing or sexuality, God's plan for sexuality, which leads literally to new life and the ongoing of the human race. Jesus's words and his teachings, they are spirit and life. Would you know salvation? Would you know righteousness? Would you know life? Then look at the words that the Spirit has breathed out. We have 66 books of them. I have been so ministered to this week as we've been reading through Psalm 119 and the psalmist's love letter, the longest chapter in all the Bible to the Word of God into how it revives us and how God's word is our counselor. His testimonies are the ones that give us wisdom that through God's word, we can have more understanding than uh, all the most brilliant teachers, not because we're smarter, but because God reveals his wisdom to us. It truly matters that we know what God has said. I think of... uh, to illustrate the point of it truly matters what the spirit of God has said and to be sure of it through reading his word. I remember a time that in high school, I went on a weekend trip to Joshua Tree and I went to a Christian high school. And so part of uh, the weekend trip was to be able to get away and pray and try to listen uh, to uh, hear God's voice or to be able to be with them. And they gave us a piece of paper And the piece of paper had a Bible verse on it that we should meditate on and think through um, in our time of prayer. And so I took that piece of paper and the verse, uh, you may know it, it was from 1 Samuel. And the words on there said, speak, Lord, your servant, if listening. Speak, Lord, your servant, if listening. And so I went off on my own and there's tons of stars and it's beautiful out there. And I'm trying to pray through this and I'm trying to think through. And it says, your servant, if listening, this was the prayer uh, that Eli told Samuel to pray uh, when he thought he heard uh, God calling him. So I'm praying in, I'm thinking I'm God's servant. If I'm listening, if I'm listening, I am God's servant. Well, what does that mean? And I just got so confused and hung up on that uh, phrase, I'm God's servant, if listening. How do I know if I'm listening enough? How can I tell? And I kind of had a little bit of, I don't know if I did a good time of prayer with this. We came back, I pulled my teacher aside. I said, hey, can you tell me what does it mean, your servant, if listening? And he said, oh, shoot, I made a typo. It's supposed to say your servant is listening. Your servant is listening. And that changes everything about it, right? It doesn't depend on if I'm doing something hard enough, but instead we are God's servants. We are listening to his word. Jesus's words are spirit and they are life. He says the spirit brings life, but you're of the flesh and the flesh is no help at all. And so we see in these unfolding verses that many 
left Jesus from a human standpoint because they were unwilling to accept his teaching. Because they were offended by the true Jesus. It was an offense to them. And lastly, because they were still in the flesh. But now, Jesus wants us to have a look from God's eternal perspective. If you remember back two weeks ago, as we talked about what salvation is like from the human standpoint and from the eternal divine perspective, that theme is still running through our text. And so Jesus now, he wants us to know something. He wants us to know is this, that he is all-knowing and that he truly is sovereign. Verse 64 and 5. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And it was they who would betray him. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, before we dive into truly seeing the sovereignty of God, I do want us to maintain the true balance that is in the Bible between the human responsibility to repent for sin, that we are responsible before God to repent of our sin. Acts 17, one point God overlooked, but now God calls all men everywhere to repent. We truly need to do that, to turn from our sin and accept God's gracious gift of Christ. And the parallel truth that God is sovereign in charge over all. And so I want you to see in verse 63, we still have the balance there. You see, it's the spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. But Jesus says the words I've spoken to you. I've spoken the words to you. Their spirit and their life, I've given them to you, but you must have the spirit. You're responsible to repent, but only the spirit can truly give life. And this balance is still here. And Jesus, he wants us to know this truth now about his sovereignty. He says, this is why I told you in verse 65 that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Why does Jesus want us to know this? As many are going to walk away. Why does he say, remember I told you unless the Father draws them, they can't come to me. First, he wants us to know that he never fails. Christian, Jesus never fails in what he sets out to do. He is allowing us to see a breathtaking, mind-stretching truth that he knows all and is in control of all. He wants us to know this so that we don't think he has failed in some way. And then think, maybe he'll fail with me too. Now, he knew those who would believe. He knew even who would betray him, as we'll see. He wants us to know this secondly, so that our faith isn't shaken when professing 
Christians turn away. It happened in Jesus's ministry. It has happened in the last 2000 years. It will happen in our lifetime. And it is heart-wrenching when professing believers say, I don't even believe there's a God or say, I believe in Jesus, but none of who the Bible reveals Jesus to be, a Jesus of their own invention. But Jesus wants us to know that he knew and that his father is in control so that our own faith isn't shaken. So that the disciples, the true disciples, what John comes to term for the first time, the 12, they know things are still going according to the plan of God. Thirdly, he has told us this so that we would know he is not, Jesus is not merely a victim. He knows the one who will betray him. Right before he's about to go to the cross, he says, I could send a legion of angels right now to help me if I wanted. He is no mere victim, but rather he is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. No one takes his life from him, but he lays down his life willingly for us because of the unfathomable love Jesus has for sinners. Fourthly, he tells us this. And the scripture unfolds in this way to model what faithful, patient proclamation of the gospel looks like. Impartially preaching, indiscriminately preaching the gospel to all people. Now, we don't have the omniscience of Jesus. We don't have the sovereignty of him, but he went forth as an example showing that we are to proclaim the gospel to all people just as he did. Regardless of anything else, we don't have his omniscience. We don't have his sovereignty. Maybe if we did, things would be different, but we obviously don't. And so we proclaim the gospel far and wide. That's why we as a church still want to go to the ends of the earth and to unreached people groups because people need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ because he's told us one day heaven will be filled with people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And he models for us faithfully, even though, yes, there are some who will not believe that he knows that we do not know that there are some who will walk away. Yes, don't let your faith be shaken because there are some who will and be patient and be loving and be pursuing as Jesus himself is. He's in control. And yet, nevertheless, verse 66 comes to us. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The first thing we know is we can tell that These are not true disciples. We know from one of John's letters that those who went out uh, from a church in 1 John 2.19, they went out from them because they were not truly of them. If they were of them, if they were true believers, they would have continued in the faith, but they were never genuine believers. They had never been born again. 
And yet, even knowing that, hearing verse 66, it hits us like a ton of bricks. And it has this acutely searching and sobering effect on us. Many walk away and no longer walk with him. And now Jesus, he turns to his 12. And we ask the question, why will these stay? Verse 67 and 69. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus turns and as he turns to them, I invite you to be searched by this question too. You know, John has a remarkable way of painting these kinds of scenes. I think of after Peter, the end of the Gospel of John, has denied Jesus. And Jesus comes back to him. And he says to him, Peter, do you love me? And you know the scene he asks him three times and it's a searching thing for all of us. We find ourselves in the shoes of Peter because we have been unfaithful in various ways to the Lord Jesus. And we find ourselves asking, do we truly love him? And here, once again, is one of those kinds of scenes as Jesus turns to his 12, he asks them a question and he actually asks them the question in the negative which means more literally translated as it is in the New American Standard Bible, he says, you do not also want to go away, do you? You don't want to go away too, do you? He asks them, assuming it in the negative, but how can we not be searched ourselves? You don't want to walk away also, do you? In church, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but it does seem likely that even in our own country, that religious liberty is going to lessen. Jesus surely has in his word promised that we will have trials. And faithfulness is going to cost you. The world hated Jesus. And in ways the world will hate us too. And so the question being asked is, do you want to go away? Is it worth it? I want to tell you and remind you, yes, it is worth it. And we find the reasons in the response of Simon Peter. He says, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's worth it. It's worth it because we know he is Lord. Peter says that first word 
And we wonder, how much did you understand at this time, Peter? That word kurios, Lord, Master, how much did you understand? But we know as we think it over, if Jesus was just another prophet, we could say, I don't know if I want to go. I might want to go away. If he was just a good moral teacher, if he was just a good king that had his time, we could go somewhere else, but he's not. He's Lord over all creation. And we, we are no longer our own, but we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God in our bodies. It is worth it because he is Lord and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And it's worth it. We can't go anywhere else because to whom else would we go? Where would we go? To whom shall we go, Peter asks? I found life and it's in you. Am I going to go to another religion? Am I going to turn to politics to fix everything in the universe? Am I going to look within myself and believe I'm good enough? I don't know about you, but I'm the reason I've gone into so much trouble in life. Am I going to go back to my old sin? No, I think what Paul said, what fruit did it get you when you were living in sin? Where else are we going to go? These years may be hard. It may be a hard road. But Jesus is Lord and he is coming back. We will be with him eternally. How could we leave him right now? And where else would we go? And his words, his words are life. Jesus, Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. We have the word of God. What other book are we going to learn about Jesus in? What other philosophy are we going to subscribe to that's going to bring us to a more enlightened state? Now, Jesus, Jesus, the, the son of God, what the gospel of John uh, identifies as the word of God. In flesh, he came into this world He has shown us the way to eternal life and it is through faith in him and what he has done. He's going to lay down his life that we could be forgiven of our sins and be clothed with his righteousness. Where is better news than that? That he is going to come and establish a kingdom that will be without end where perfect righteous and perfect justice will reign. And it's worth it. Because we have come to know. Because just as Peter, all Christians have believed, been born again, been given new hearts and new affections. And we have come to know, which speaks of an ongoing action that we believed and we have come to know continually the truth that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Who is more lovely than Jesus? The one from whom and to whom and through whom all things exist. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The one who humbled himself by draping himself in human flesh and let his flesh be torn apart and took the wrath of God upon himself that we might be forgiven and never have to drink that cup of wrath. Who, 
Who has ever loved us like the Son of God? Who has given his life for us that we might be crucified with Christ so that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh and the body we're still in, we live by faith in the Son of God who, get this, loved us and gave himself for us. He is holy. There is no one like him. He is the one. He is the one. He is set apart and there is only one like him. He is the Lord and there is no other of God. Can you believe we've come to know God? So the Christian says, where where could I go? Yeah, I'm going to struggle. Yeah, I'm going to sit, but like, I, I, I'm going to keep coming to the Lord Jesus. Where else would I go? Good job, Peter. Jesus replies. He answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The Lord Jesus ends with a doozy. He replies. Peter gives a spot-on answer, but Jesus reminds him in one sense of, hey, remember, I'm the one who said, you follow me. I chose you, Peter. He chose the twelve. And we know because of who Judas is, that is not this right here, though Later on, when Jesus tells the disciples and Judas is departing, he says, I chose you that you may bear fruit, that he is speaking of salvation. Here he is speaking of choosing them to be apostles, uh, disciples. But the fact remains, he chose them. We remember that all the Christian life is of grace. The beautiful, powerful grace of God which finds us. He reminds Peter, that's all true and you have. And remember though, it was my initiative that chose you. And then he reveals that he does know that one of them is a devil. This is speaking of an opposer, a one who will oppose him. Judas is going to be the one who will betray Jesus. And that's whom he speaks of. What do we do with that? Well, we know And we rest in the truth that once again, Jesus knew everything. He was omniscient. He, he, no one took his life from him as if he were a victim, but he willingly gave it. He let himself be betrayed by sinners that he would forgive them. And as we close, we should know from these truths that Jesus knows your heart too. There's no point in hiding it from him. If you have never repented of your sin, maybe you felt bad about it, maybe you've shed a lot of tears, but you've never truly turned away. You haven't denied yourself. You haven't been willing to lose your life for the sake of the gospel. I want to call you to repent and find true life in Jesus Christ. You have heard the good news that he came for you and to forgive your sin. So forsake it. Forsake it. It cannot save you. 
and run to him and he will save you and find life in him and don't ever go anywhere else other than him. It is a hard saying to deny yourself, but it is an infinitely better future finding yourself in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all of us, we need to examine ourselves. Is there anywhere that we're tempted to run from him? Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to him. We need him. And really practically in this unique, special season, I want to encourage you to do the following. First, I want you to get together with a friend somehow. You've been able to figure it out some way, uh, whether it's video call or in person. I want you to ask each other, how have you seen the goodness of Jesus in your life? Because we need to encourage one another. We're meant to be in fellowship and we need those encouragements. Secondly, I want to remind us that we must take this gospel to the world. And so I want to invite you in our church who are going through tumultuous times right now in a season of, of upheaval to start to willingly pray to the Lord Jesus would you have me take the gospel to the ends of the earth? Lastly, I want to encourage you to spend time in the word of God. There is no substitute church. Jesus has given us his word. It is spirit and it is life. But don't end just with those three things to do. End hearing this. Jesus is the Holy One of God. Those who have relented and repented of all other trusts will be saved and with Him forever. He is able to save forever those whom He loves. He's sufficient. He is the bread of life. I love you, church, and I can't wait to see you soon. Lord Jesus, Write these truths on our hearts. In your name, amen.